And now, uh, Victoria? Yes, ma'am. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And welcome, everybody. So happy to have everybody here joining us with our science news. And I'm going to begin with an article about volcanic hotspots. And with a, just a little background info, a hotspot is a magma plume that's erupting um, in, into a continent. So when, when there's a plate sitting on top of the hotspot and, and there's an eruption, then you have um, new earth formation. If it's erupting underneath the ocean, then those are called seamounts. And those are just enormous amounts of, of surface area. And, and I think it's the largest habitat on Earth is, is formed by seamounts. But this article uh, begins, volcanic relics scattered through the Australian landscape are a map of the northward movement of the continent over a hot spot inside the Earth during the last 35 million years. And so this is uh, discussing how amazing it is that this research, what, what they've learned through studying the, what was created by these hotspots. The University of Queensland researchers, Dr. Tamini Tapu, Associate Professor Teresa Ubide, and Professor Paolo Vasconcelos, discovered how these relics reveal the inner structure of the Australian volcanoes and became increasingly complex as the hotspots magma output decreased. So there's, they, can, they, have, they have a timeline because they've got this, this chain of volcanoes and they can study them all and they can see the oldest, the youngest. And so Dr. Altamini explains that these large volcanoes were active for up to 7 million years. They formed the basis of the study and the hotspot was incredibly strong in its early stages, generating some of Eastern Australia's most beloved natural attractions. The volcanoes he goes on to explain, the volcanoes formed as the continent moved over a stationary hotspot inside the planet, melting the land above it so magma could ooze upward. It's now, just uh, breaking from that for a second, it's, it's now believed that, it used to be believed that hotspots were stationary forever, but now there's evidence that they do kind of peter out and that they do move a bit. So it continues to say that this hotspot and the movement of the of the continent left a treasure trove of volcanic landmarks in its wake forming the longest chain of continental hotspots on the earth along australia's eastern side and as you cast your eye along this massive chain you'll find queensland volcanoes such as the glasshouse mountains and tweed volcanoes which are shield volcanoes enormous long-lived lava outpourings in tweed volcano may have weakened the hotspot and cause the younger volcanoes to the south to become smaller and shorter lived. This indicates the changes caused as the continent shifted over the weakening hotspot. Associate Professor Teresa Obide said that as the magma production waned, the volcanoes became internally more complicated, erupting lavas full of complex crystals. Um, I did find another paper that is about research of these crystals, and they can tell more about the age of the volcanoes and also the origin of the magma. And I can, I'll post that after I share this one, but it's, there are people 
who collect the crystals from volcanic eruptions and then um, study this. There's liquid in the crystals as well. So going on, these little heroes hold the secrets of how volcanoes work inside and tell us that the late Australian volcanoes were full of magma pockets or reservoirs, Dr. Ubi, they said. As these cooled down and became more viscous, it became more difficult to generate eruptions, which may have been more explosive. We found that the arrival of new, hotter, gas-rich magma acts like a shaken bottle of fizzy drink, causing a buildup of pressure in the magma and eventually an eruption. He says that Australia's extinct hotspot volcanoes provide a unique laboratory for researchers to investigate processes leading to volcanic eruptions across the globe. The effect of erosion over tens of millions of years allows us to access complete sequences of lava that can be difficult to access in more recent volcanoes. So it's amazing. They can actually read the lava. It then makes it possible to reconstruct the inner structure of the volcanoes, sort of like opening a doll's house, which gives us a much better understanding of hotspot activity globally. This is particularly important given there are many active hotspots on Earth, including the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, and in other continents, such as the United States Yellowstone Volcano. So here, I'm in Oregon, and we have Mount Hood, and that's, that's um, sitting, that is a hotspot. And then, as well, they mentioned Yellowstone, and then the Hawaiian Islands are a hotspot as well, but that, for, that erupts above the surface of the ocean. And there are, um, there are about 40 to 50 hotspots that are known on the Earth right now. Continuing, volcanoes in these areas produce large volumes of lava and have an important role in the evolution of our planet and atmosphere. So having a real-world doll's house to play around in and observe variations with time and magma supply is very helpful. Our study shows the fundamental role of the strength of heat anomalies inside the Earth and in the evolution of our planet and its landscape over millions of years. So that's that. Super interesting. So, like, essentially, they're reading the volcanoes, like, eruptions to find out, like, not only, like, what like what's causing it but like i guess how the volcanoes work from the material that's spit out from it. That, that's like, exactly yeah exactly that that's and they have them wild. all together yeah <laughs> like i i couldn't even imagine you can do that until now you know what i'm saying like 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 how, maybe this is just my ignorance in the topic but like how much different stuff gets spit out of a volcano you know what i'm saying like it all just looks like red ooze until it turns into black nasty crust. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is kind of cool. <laughs> There's a huge difference because it can also be, for example, it can be if there's if there's heating and then there's melting. So there's heating in the mantle. And the hot spot is kind of like a bulb and a spout. And so the magma can pour out and and then create this you know this mountain shape then the mountain shape when it cools and it becomes dense then it can um 
it condenses and then it, it what do you call it drops in the middle so then you get this volcano shape that's one way that they happen but so this is magma but it could also be that there's heating underneath pre-existing rock so then if that rock melts and becomes magma like and erupts then you're going to have you're going to have a different lava flow and then if you have if you have something happening um, where it's slowly heating, then then you will have more you'll have gas, more gas involved. And the eruption, so for example, Mount um, Mount St. Helens, when that erupted, that was tons of ash. So that was completely different. You know, it ended up it did it was it was ash. You know, it was, it was just tons like an ash flow coming out. It wasn't, for example, in in well, Hawaii isn't well, that is a hot spot, right? That is that is hot spot lava, and so that's a different type of flow. You know, it's more like um, clay-like, and and you can see the lines of the cooling in it compared to a lava that that is um, you know harder and will form a crusty surface and and a crusty broken surface right away. So there's there's a lot of difference. It de kind of depends on what the Earth is cooking. You know, like what like the hot spot could be the Bunsen burner and then whatever earth is on top of it is what <laughs> is what also can explode along with the magma that's coming out of the earth. So Kirko, that's that's really cool that you mentioned that that you didn't think of it as anything like that. But there's there's a huge variety in what comes out of a volcano. That's super cool. Do you know if like that study uh thinks that you could use like the similar like process to like understand like otherworldly volcanoes you know like ice volcanoes on some of the moons out there in the solar system and stuff like yeah, that Yeah, totally I, I was reading about that that there's it's suspected that there's an ice spot excuse me a um a hot spot on one of the moons of jupiter that's that's melting through the ice as we speak <laughs> super cool yeah, thank you. That was really interesting. I don't know too much about um, about it, so I learned really when I when you shared this. Um, so thank you so much for that. Do you want me to switch to the next one or? Yeah, sure. Do you wanna do you wanna take turns and you read one or or shall I keep going or would you like to do? Uh, it's. Do you want to do the three and then I do the rest? Because then I, I have them kind of... Oh, continuity. Absolutely, continuity. <laughs> Let's keep going. Yes, indeed. Okay, this one is... This is really sweet. So they're all really sweet. Volcanoes are sweet. Everything's sweet. Okay, so this one, this article is about synchronous movement in... in, in um, excuse me, that's my cat. Oh, sorry, I've got, I've got, um... Oh, wait, okay. the pinning yeah. didn't work, I see. One second, one second. There. There, should be... Are we synch synchronized? <laughs> yes, synchronized, sorry, go ahead. So this article is about synchronous movement, and... They begin, here's the summary beginning, individual fish in schools scatter in unison when a predator is in their midst. 
Such precisely coordinated group movements and immobility during threats have long been observed in insects and mammals. Now, a brain pathway has been discovered that enables individual animals to rapidly coordinate a unified response with no rehearsal required. So just a little bit of, um, just fleshing this out a little bit, if we think about, about synchronous movement in animals, there's, um, you know, with, what are they, swallows that, that do fly in what they call murmurs. I don't know if you've seen that. We have... We have, um, and also swifts, we have something in Portland here where in starting in September, there's a huge flocks of swifts will suddenly take over the air and then start flying in a swirling pattern like a funnel pattern and then fly straight down an old incinerator chute that's like a really skinny chimney. And so the sky goes from black, you know, regular sky, whatever color it is, then black because it's covered with these swifts. And then they funnel, and then they just, they just pummel themselves down. It's unbelievable. So there's that, and then maybe you've seen sardines doing that, you know, sardine schooling, and then rapidly shifting direction. So this is what this is talking about, and even with people, there's research that shows <laughs> people with humans that we do synchronize with with dancing and um, you know along to music. That a group of people may synchronize our breath and our cardiac rhythm. So there's there's something going on. But with with schools of fish, they have they have uh, pressure sensors on their lateral line, and that helps them stay in their school and. They have some fish that are, they know their position in the school, so it is, it is coordinated. Whereas birds, they will do, that is flocking. Flocking really means that any individual can take the lead and can change direction, and the rest will follow. So with this, with this research, they, they were studying, um, Publishing recently in the print edition of the journal Biological Psychiatry, Virginia Tech scientists in the Frawlin Biomedical Research Institute at Virginia Tech described how they studied synchronized immobility in pairs of mice and identified the underlying brain circuit responsible for this behavior. The study provides an identified target to advance research on the poorly understood brain activity that underlies coordinated group movement, and more broadly, social communication in general, which is compromised in a variety of human neuropsychiatric conditions. And I have an issue with this, um, this terminology here, but um, saying neuropsychiatric conditions such as attention, hyperactivity disorder, and autism spectrum disorder, and social communication disorder. And I feel that that terminology will change in the future, and we already are using different terminology because speaking of neurodiversity does not, it's not ethical to term that a disorder. It's difference in communication, perception, etc. But I have a um, hard time with that word disorder. But continuing, examples of, examples of coordinated defensive responses in nature are numerous. Oxen, for example, 
Welcome, Joyce. Oxen, for example, form a circle when they face a threat, said Alexei Moritzov, assistant professor of the Frohlin Biomedical Research Institute and corresponding author of the study. Synchronization under threat is an evolutionary conserved surveillance mechanism and occurs across species, including humans. This type of behavior has never been measured in a lab before, but now we can quantify this response and explore the underlying mechanisms. And I want to make, um, I just want to interject here that if you consider dance, and for example, the choreographer Merce Cunningham, he did actually explore the idea of synchronized movement without, without verbal communication or rehearsal. So in perhaps in the lab, this is the, this is the first time people know that it's being measured and, and um, quantified, but but there are other examples of, of researching synchronized movement without, without verbal communication. Mice were trained to associate an auditory cue to a potential threat like a fire drill. The researchers studied parts of the brain that process and remember fear and social information, and they found that a specific connection between two parts of the brain, the ventral hippocampus and the basolateral amygdala, plays an important role in coordinating human behavior when faced with a threat. The information suggests a method to investigate these brain connections in more complicated situations. Although the study began with pairs of individuals, more research is needed to determine whether the same pathway is responsible for coordinating larger group behavior, such as huddling, in larger groups. This gives us a way toward deeper understanding of social behavior, Morozov said. At home and at work, people coordinate and exchange information with partners. Now we have a model that helps us understand the underlying brain pathway. This is among the most significant discoveries made in recent years on identifying the sites and the potential underlying mechanisms in the brain that mediate these types of important social interactions, said Michael Friedlander, Virginia Tech Vice President for Health Sciences and Technology and Executive Director of the Frohlin Biomedical Research Institute. While the pathologies in these behaviors are well characterized in human clinical populations, attempts at effective therapies have been hampered by a lack of understanding of which brain circuits and biological processes are impacted. Dr. Moritzov and his team have designated and implemented an elegant series of experiments in mice to provide a potentially powerful base from which to advance this science and hopefully shorten the time to develop more strategically targeted therapies for humans. Yeah. yeah, this is so interesting, um, this work. And um, yeah, you're right. I mean, um, this has been shown like in different settings, but um, that they basically look at specific brain regions and so on that are involved uh, in this model is really interesting. And um I think it will be great to, you know, they will need a lot of follow-up, you know, then maybe have some sort, it will be harder to do, but if you do brain imaging, you're kind of in a fixed place. You cannot really um, do things as a human. You can imagine doing things together. Um, maybe research in primates or so will... Um, will elude more if 
if the same brain regions are still involved like in humans for this or if more brain regions are involved and then um yeah what mechanisms you can basically jumpstart to help people that maybe um are not as good as or or have like a neurodiversity um to to perform um synchronicity like this but yeah it's really interesting thank you for sharing this yeah it is it is also interesting to me from from dance experience there's again going back to the idea of flocking if you imagine a large group of people flocking is exactly it's the same as in birds you the the directions are you're all going to move as a group and shift whomever is the leader with no planning in advance and that what's necessary is to be observant and and the more people do this exercise exercise of flocking the better a group will get at it so without brain imaging we don't know how many of the cues are vis vis um, visible or even if it's something such as um, you know temperature differences or what is it is it you know is it something in our minds that we're sensing um, you know what what are the senses that we're using when we do flocking but but even that or, or a mirroring a simple mirroring exercise doing that with somebody and that that is visual but it's it's also that that one person would be leading and one person would be following the other person's movements and even doing that people become more you, you see that that the ability to follow is is improved over time the more people work together it would be really interesting to to understand what all the mechanisms are that contribute to that that what are we learning what what learning is necessary to enable groups to be able to move together or to individuals to be able to follow each other's mirroring apart from visual from following and being being observant yeah and you know what this also reminds me of um when the author howard bloom was here in his book he describes that for like a whole society you always need kind of both you need like a or usually a population consists of a lot of people that just you know follow this and and go along and and then there's there's also always a few needed that don't uh, synchronize and look for you know different ways of doing things all the time to get kind of trailblaze uh, progress I don't know if you remember that discussion but it kind of is interesting about neurodiversity that we kind of medicate away nowadays a lot of uh, people that think differently and uh, I always think about that that you know for progress we need different types of thinking and synchronization or not so yeah it's really interesting yeah absolutely or in with respect to ADHD if you have in a classroom situation, children are 
expressing that they're not comfortable being required to sit still for long periods of time, then hopefully educators, which I am one, <laughs> we look at that and that, that helps change the classroom setting. That helps people remember that we need to incorporate movement more frequently and we need to have less sitting down. And, and so, you know, when there's somebody who's saying, this doesn't work for me, then, then we serve everybody when we recognize that as, as um, important and necessary input that maybe everybody isn't willing to give or isn't able to give because their, their discomfort level isn't as great. And some students are able to, to conform, and those who aren't are, are the trailblazers that you were mentioning, you know, Katarina and Howard Bloom's example, that help to change things for the better. You know, when I heard this, uh, you talk about this uh, research article, kind of reminds me, because my dad's a musician, um, like when he would have like jam sessions. You know, like you have all these different people, like pretty much essentially acting on their own accord, but it all kind of falls in together. You know what I'm saying? It's like they, they're doing their own thing, but at the same time, it's like synchronized. So it's kind of interesting because like I never really even thought about it, how like nature does the same thing. That's super interesting. Kyle, what were you, what was your example of that when you said nature does the same thing? Like how you have like these synchronous movements, you know what I'm saying? Because I don't know anybody who's, I've never heard of any studies towards, uh, towards like that type of thing. Like I don't even know how you would study that, to be truthful. Uh, but like that's the, the thing that popped into my head. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like, a, um, yeah. How do we have a jam session that works? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like you think like by the, I guess maybe by like, uh, like common practice, like you want things to be on the cord, but like you look at like a, a large school of fish, it's damn near chaos. They're just kind of swimming. Like when you look at it, it just looks like they're kind of swimming in one general direction like flock, giant flocks of birds it looks like they're going one general direction but there's so much more to it right and then and then what is it that we've learned when we're able to do it well that's it is it is really it is really intriguing that's why i i like this article so okay here we go to the next one <laughs> i like the allusion to hansel and gretel even though that's a really scary story um, there's something about scattering those crumbs that's always very intriguing, and I like gingerbread. So, we begin. In the classic fairy tale, Hansel and Gretel dropped breadcrumbs. It's also a really fun opera. <laughs> dropped breadcrumbs while walking through a treacherous forest so they wouldn't lose their way. Rovers may one day... That wasn't the reason that they... That wasn't the only reason. I think they dropped the breadcrumbs so that they could also be found. But anyway, rovers may one day use a similar trick to traverse other planets without losing their data. And so by rovers, they mean, you know, like rovers that are on other planets, not just like traveling minstrels. 
Um, if typically, if a rover permanently loses connection, communication during a mission, all the information that it has gathered is lost. To avoid this, researchers suggest using a multi-rover system in which a smaller rover piggybacks on a larger mother rover. The smaller rover would then venture into any especially uncertain territory, such as a cave or lava tubes, speaking of volcanism, deploying sensors the size of an AirPods case, like breadcrumbs, as it goes. The sensors could then communicate with each other via a wireless network and funnel any collected data back to the mother rover, theoretical physicist Wolfgang Fink and colleagues proposed February 11th in Advances in Space Research. As proof of concept, the team built prototype sensors that communicate via Wi-Fi. It's not that the smaller rover would be following the breadcrumbs back the way it came. Instead, we use the sensors for the data to find its way communication-wise out of the cave back to the mother rover, said Fink of the University of Arizona in Tucson. The technology could also be useful here on Earth, especially after a natural disaster such as an earthquake. A rover could be sent with a deployable sensors into rubble where it's too dangerous for people to perform search and rescue missions. The breadcrumb-like communication network could allow researchers to cater to the essence of scientific exploration, Fink said, allowing rovers to overcome some of the constraints posed by tricky terrain. So I think I'm, you know, this, this makes me think of the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria recently and how people are going into rubble and how helpful that would be if the path of the, of the search and rescue people could, could just be followed and whatever they were finding could be communicated right there in real time at the site or even even with these little little airpod size airpod case size sensors even if new information came up along that pathway of sensors that could be communicated back to a central location as well so that that is the end of the article That's really, um, it's a really good title and it's, it's really interesting um, to get an inspiration from a story like this. Um, um, it's, it's to, to go to uh, exploration uh, of uh, other planets, you know, from a children's story like this, that, that's really neat and a really great storytelling, I think. And, um, and I think um, this will, yeah, uh, like ideas like this to co make these connections, uh, to connect those dots, like uh, are really neat and, and, and a really beautiful way of making progress. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no, uh, I was thinking that in a way, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily only a children's story because it's, it may be just also, you know, embodying wisdom from long ago when they came up with that story. Maybe people use that for some, or something similar, <laughs> in, you know, in their real life. Anyway, I'm done. Yeah, I'm, so I'm noticing a theme here between these, these um, Hansel and Gretel's breadcrumbs, and then 
the the um, synchronous movement of animals communicating with each other and then the chain of volcanoes moving from one hot spot to the next and giving information about the earth and and the interiors so didn't realize there was a theme but apparently there was <laughs> so thank you yeah that's interesting it's i also realized that sometimes when i do things or write things that all of the sudden you discover you know there was something you were kind of maybe um, solving a problem <laughs> And that everything you write or look up about, it's relatively related to that. And you only realize it after. It's, it's really interesting. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, is it okay if we move to the next one? I have a bunch, but um, let's, go. Let's, let's say how many we let's see how many we will uh we will manage to get so let me post the link i thought uh this one was pretty interesting let me see if it works yeah <laughs> the link looked so little so okay yeah so um nature nano syringes I thought this was really interesting uh, to harness um, bacterial machines for next-gen medicine. Um, you know, uh, bacteria, they have this system of give, delivering each other uh, some information, uh, especially to kind of become resistant to something, overcome something. They can inject each other with uh, small pieces of DNA and um they are harnessing basically this um yeah this very ancient technology if you want to say so to deliver um to deliver in a very um specific way a syringe like way injecture and in injection um and these uh, bacteria they, that naturally binds to uh, for example, also insect cells and injects a protein payload into them. Um, this is the type of bacteria they use. And um, the researchers use artificial intelligence tool AlphaFold to engineer these syringe structures to deliver a range of useful proteins to both human cells and cells in live mice, uh, which is pretty exciting. Uh, usually you read about this and it kind of stays in like cell cultures, but that they um, achieved this also in alive mice is, is really cool. There's a really beautiful example of how protein engineering can alter the biological activity of a natural system. Uh, so Josef Kreitz, um, the first author of the student in Zeng's lab, um, I think it substantiates protein engineering as a useful tool in bioengineering and the development of new therapeutic systems. The delivery, the, 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 the do you have that lately that your websites jump around from the advertisement so on? Delivery of therapeutic molecules is a major bottleneck for medicine and we will need a deep bench of options to now the website is gone um to um to 
to get these powerful new therapies into the right cells in the body. By learning from how nature transports proteins, we are able to develop a new platform that can help address this gap. Um, so injection via contraction, symbiotic bacteria use roughly 100 nanometer long syringe-like machines to inject proteins into host cells to help adjust the biology of their surroundings and enhance their survival. These machines called extracellular contractile injection systems consist of a rigid tube uh, inside a sheath that uh, con tracts uh, driving a spike on the end of the tube through the cell membrane. This forces protein cargo inside the tube to enter the cell. On the outside of uh, one end, um, this injection tube, um, um, there are tail fibers that recognize specific receptors um, and latch onto them. Um, and um, you can then engineer that to have basically a system that naturally targets, um, you know, specific um, cells and then also deliver uh, specifically engineered proteins you want to deliver to human cells um, by re-engineering those tail fibers um, and the proteins you want to deliver. Yeah, I think this is really exciting. It's very smart. Um, and uh, it's also really impressive. They use a lot of different technologies. Um, you know, they use, um, you know, engineering of proteins with AI. They use engineering of the bacteria um, to so that they target the right cells and um, inject into the right cells. Um, so what they want to do is mostly target cancer cells, uh, no matter where they are, also in deeper tissues and with uh, different DNA cutting edge um, gene editing systems, they can, they can do all that combining with AI. I think that's really cool. Okay, shall we move on to? Yeah, sure. I just I was saying that's is this. So is this structure similar to? I'm not sure if I pronounce it correctly. The pilus or the pilus of the bacteria that they use to attach and then transfer genetic material. Yeah, yeah. So there are two ways they inject. They have that, and then they have a type of bacteria that injects also and to other like their host uh, organism also stuff so um and they use that type of bacteria yeah but it's the same system basically yeah yeah so we're making use of that system is what this is talking about yeah exactly yeah the theme today could be uh what's old is new or there's new or there's nothing new under the sun or something like that <laughs> yeah i'm i'm just i'm it's fascinating i'm i'm in, i'm kind of looking at what is the the difference between that and and viral injection of genetic material although i mean the scale is different but the um the mechanic inject proteins um the the virus can only inject very small 
um, amounts of RNA or DNA, and these can also inject proteins. I think that's the I difference. See, right. It is a huge scale. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Do we want to have a few bad news and then an, like a couple of bad news and then finish with the good news? I forgot we did this last time too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I was just thinking of the bacteria forming a union, like a bacterial strand oh, okay. union. <laughs> okay, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so, you know, we have always good and bad news, so let's get the, the bad stuff. Uh, climate change, uh, I think it's really also important to include that in our science news and um, this paper um, or this article came out which basically shows a map um, where they used basically a new computational model to find hotspots where compounding environmental and economic risk converge and you can basically see this heat map um, um, this was done by MIT a joint program on the science and policy of global change pinpoints specific county, counties within the United States that are particularly vulnerable to economic distress resulting from a transition from fossil fuels to low carbon energy sources and by combining county level data on employment in fossil fuel industries with data on populations below the poverty level, the tool identifies locations with high risk of transition-driven economic hardship. It turns out that many of these high-risk counties are in the south-central of the U.S. with a heavy concentration in the lower portion of the Mississippi River. Um, this tool, they call it the system for the triage of risk from environmental and social economic stressors platform. And it almost instantly displaced this risk combination on an easy to read visual map, revealing those counties that stand to gain the most from targeted green jobs retaining programs. And the drawing on data that characterize land, water and energy systems, biodiversity, demographics, environmental equity and transportation networks. The stress platform enables users to assess multiple co-evolving compounding hazards within uh, the US geographical region from the national to the county level. Because of its, of its comprehensiveness and precision, the screening level uh, visualization tool can pinpoint risk hotspots that can be subs investigated in greater detail. Decision makers can then plan targeted interventions to boost resilience to location-specific physical and economic risks. I think this is, you know, it's kind of bad news because, I don't know, combined with an article that came out, a study that came out that we are most likely um, uh, not making the 1.5 Celsius increase. I think in the next 10 years we are uh, moving um, over that if it continues the way it is right now. So, uh, which um, 
I don't know if that's already in, um, included in this heat map, but what I think is really interesting is that you can basically check which factors are in which regions and uh, policymakers can then see, you know, the the most, the highest fact, risk factor of resilience to go down and hopefully address that. Um, um, so, yeah, I think it's really important. Yeah, I, th I think that's good. I, I've often thought that, you know, in, in some parts of the country, there there's political opposition to change because of the job situation. But if they were to, you know, locate, you know, green industries there, then it could make it a lot better. And, you know, I was thinking politically speaking, but this is a better, you know, scientific analysis to, to look at. It's not, not necessarily locating it in the most politically crucial areas, which also might be important to get things passed, but also in places where it's identified where it's going to be the, the most hardship. So sounds good. Yeah, this room. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Katarina. Oh, no, no, please go. Well, I was going to say this, this reminds me of something that's proposed and happening in Atlanta. I don't know if you've heard of Cop City, but there's this, they have a huge budget for well, they want um, the public cost is thirty three point five million to build this fake city next to a poor working community, which has been underfunded and under resourced. And they're they're building it's a police training facility. It's it's going they propose a bomb detonating site to be placed near a juvenile facility, and it's it's um it's hundreds of acres of the Wilani forest. And it's the, which is the largest urban forest in the U.S. So, you know, it's, if we're talking about climate justice, people really need to understand that environmental racism is happening and that we need to look at, at this problem, you know, exactly as you're bringing up with this, with this map, doing this kind of triage that, that it's, it's talking about who is affected and, and where exactly so that it helps people know, you know, really, really what, what kind of suffering is happening. I think Kyle mentioned something about that in the chat. Yeah, how many people will suffer as a result? Um, so it's, it's, yeah, Cop City is really something to know about and to speak up to your legislators about stopping. It's, it's just, it's a horrible, horrible thing to imagine destroying hundreds of acres a forest that's and and consider all the benefits of forest of forest land to to people and to our health our mental health our physical health and destroying that in favor of creating a um, a training facility for police yeah they they yeah the, this horrible and you know we we had the guest speaker here that showed how much it improves mental health to just spend half an hour in the forest walking around and how the the stress hormone levels and all kind of bio biomarkers improved um, by doing that um, which was really interesting and uh, a really well done you know with controls and everything study uh, from berlin the charité i believe 
and um, another thing is also availability to to uh, switch to uh, new modern technologies and renewables you know just in in the city for example here in new york city availability of charging cars on the street if you have an electric vehicle if you have to drive like an hour to get to a charger because people live in apartments and your apartment building you know cheap apartment buildings don't have a garage um, and uh, the, the, the availability on streets to have charges is also is mostly also in wealthier neighborhoods um, you know all of this will make people not you know excludes a lot of people from participating and moving on and uh, to renewables um, and, and also having jobs in, in those areas. So it's been discussed here in the city. They want to improve that, but it's going really slow and a lot of those charges on the streets don't work well. Anyways, <laughs> it's a mess. And um, yeah, I hope, I hope we will address that, but um, we need to push, pe uh, I think, people. So, and to move to a kind of positive study how we could fix things um this study from canada shows that um if you have a higher tree diversity in a forest it increases carbon storage and soil fertility and um you know when we have a lot of forests that are used for, um, you know, wood production, and there um, the the replanting tends to be, you know, kind of a monoculture forest. Um, and the study of in Canada that was done in Canada shows that many forests over long term can help increase carbon capture and mitigate climate change by having a higher tree diversity and the study was published in nature and it's the first of its kind to show the sustained benefits of tree diversity on a large spatial scale in terms of storing carbon and nitrogen in the soil the, it reinforces the importance of biodiversity conservation in forests um, and um, which is a very valuable tool in mitigating climate change, particularly in enhancing carbon storage. And when I when I read this, I thought immediately of our very recent speaker we had here that uh, talked about, um, uh, you know, how um, microbiome changes with climate change and also then carbon capture um, he studies this in california um, and then he has like this different lands where he creates this different environmental factors like droughts and so on and shows that then different um, microbes survive and that uh, and you know with a lot of droughts for example a lot of microbes that uh, do this carbon capture they kind of die and um, the soil will be less fertile and also be a less effective 
carbon capture tool. And I wonder um, if we should invite these authors and kind of ask also the, the microbiome uh, soil a speaker that was here um, come and <laughs> incentivize them to collaborate because I would assume that this uh, diversity increases also diversity in the soil uh, microbiome and that's why carbon capture is way more efficient. What do you guys think? Go ahead, Joyce. Yeah. I think, I don't know if many of you know Philip Owen, who has, uh, and he's in a lot of um, other environment rooms, and, and he always talks about, uh, you know, a, a tree plantation is not a forest, and he's in South Africa, and he says that uh, there's these big eucalyptus trans, um, plantations that, that they're, you know, kind of advertising as being green, and and you know storing carbon but that they really don't store uh store carbon anywhere near as well as the natural grasslands and the diverse you know natural ecosystems so that's a very what you're talking about is a favorite topic of his i'll, I'll put the name of his um, house in the chat and uh, anybody and yeah and he'd probably love it if you had those speakers come anyway thanks i'm done yeah, thank you for that feedback. Oh, go ahead, Victoria. Yeah, sure. I'm. I think it was two weeks ago the article that I shared about fungi, and it was called uh, "Mushrooms and Their Post-Rain Electrical Conversations," and we were talking about this that that there's the, it's the mycorrhiza that are connecting all everyone's roots, and that those they're both fungi are both internal. To the roots and external and they have different kinds different types of conversations that they enable for the for the forest and that when you are cutting doing a clear cut or even removing old growth that those relationships are destroyed and and they take hundreds of years to develop in layers and so any, any finding is, you know, anything, any forest study is only going to support this. And, and um, you know, the more that people look on, on these smaller scales, like, you know, on the scale of just studying the fungi, um, you know, the more it will prove what uh, somebody has mentioned that we already know. Arlene has mentioned that, you know, this is common knowledge for a while. And, and this is if any indigenous population is asked about how how their land works, any of anything that's being studied, anything that we're discussing is has already been known. And so now here we are just discussing it maybe in greater detail and in different types of data driven ways. But yeah, it's all it's all something that we know and 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 um and it is it is wonderful to consider that you know to consider that the trees are talking to each other through the the um, you know tele, sort of telecommunication of fungi. Yeah, that was a really interesting article, and we ha will have him here, uh, the speaker that will talk about the study. Uh, I forgot which date. 
<laughs> I have to look in the calendar, but it is um it it will be a really interesting room. And I wanted to actually do a different article, but since we are here talking about interconnected forests, um I think we should discuss this one first. Um because um this one is really cool. Um, and it's also a very highly interconnected system that is actually a huge organism. Um, so a sound artist eavesdrops on what is thought to be the world's heaviest organism in Utah. Um, a huge group of aspens is considered to be a single organism. Um, so as I said, it's the world's heaviest living organism, a forest of one tree that is thought to take the crown. Now a sound expert is listening into the quiet group in an attempt to hear its secrets. Uh, known as Pando, a Latin for I spread, the 40,000 genetically identical quivering aspens in south central Utah are considered to be a single organism with the trees actually branches throughout to be connected by a shared root system. The upshot is a vast living entity thought to be thousands of years old that covers 43 hectares uh, with a dry weight of about 6 million kilograms, uh, making it putatively the Earth's heaviest living organism. But it also and but it is also an organism in danger with experts warning uh, Pando is probably dying off due to human actions. Now an acoustic artist has revealed how he has delved deep to uncover fresh insights into the tree. This project began with a question, what is the sound of one of the world's largest organisms? Um, said Jeff Rice, um, a sound artist in the presentation. Um, at the meeting of the Acoustic Society of America in Chicago. Uh, the endeavor was first just an art project um, for the nonprofit group Friends of Pando. I recorded pretty much everything that I could possibly record, Rice said in an interview. Um, and then looking for new ways of listening to the tree, Rice. Um, placed a hydrophone inside the hole at the base of one of the branches and lowered it down to touch the roots. It was just an experiment and I honestly didn't think it would get I would get anything. And when he put on his headphones, he was in for a surprise and one recording made during a thunderstorm, an eerie deep rumbling can be heard. What you're hearing, I think, is the sound of millions of leaves in the forest vibrating the tree and passing down through the branches down into the earth. Fascinated by the approach, the pair carried out an impromptu experiment. Audit pounded on one branch of Pando while Rice monitored the sound at the roots of another branch about 100 feet away. What we were doing was not science, it was just sort of exploration. While Audit's pounding was not audible through the air, a thump was detected through the hydrophone. Um, that suggests that there's a connection between these different branches in terms of sound. What we're hearing is not just this one branch that we're listening to, but many branches around us. 
However, the results do not necessarily provide evidence of a connected root system, not least as the sound could be traveling through the soil. Professor Paul Rogers, an expert on PANO at Utah State University who was not involved in the work, said it was not known for certain that the branches of Pando were connected by the root system and welcomed Rice's acoustic work. However, it should be treated as an experiment at this time, which needs to be demonstrated via strong scientific support. For Rice, however, it seems um, his initial question has been answered. I think the sound of Pando is really the sound of all of the parts of it. It's the birds that are living in the tree, and it's the insects, and it's the wind and the leaves, and it's the vibration of the earth, and the potential sound of the roots. And so I see it as really a great way of understanding the interconnectivity of Pando and also soundscapes in general. I think this was really cool and kind of related to the fungi system and maybe, you know, if the the guys that did the, the fungi um, system recording, um, if they would help them, that would be perfect. That's a great thought. I love that. <laughs> I mean, it is... There is a lot to think about, um, you know, like with respect to statics and resonance and, you know, and, and how the acoustics works in there. And I guess they need to know what's connected to what, but, but couldn't they do that with, with, um, you know, sonic resonance and, and, um, yeah, I, I just love this thought. It'd be, it'd be, um, nice to get a recording and play it in here. Maybe I can find it. Yeah, I will definitely ask him in the discussion if he doesn't want to look into Pando next. <laughs> Probably won't work, but uh, because most of the time people are very specialized, but maybe he can provide some insights to the Pando Foundation, how to do it, and they can then do this. Um, yeah, more in the scientific way would be really interesting. I see a few links that say listen to the sound of the panda. So I'm, I'm when I find it, I'll, I'm, I'll see, I'll play it. <laughs> oh, great! Yeah, thank you. Okay, I had way too many articles so but two i thought were kind of really interesting and exciting um well interesting one and useful the other one so um yeah this will be hopefully very useful in the future you know a lot of kids um they you know these peanut allergies and other allergies can be really life-threatening Especially for kids, they don't know, you know, if they're in a school that they're not careful, they don't know what they're eating, and then they get into these life-threatening situations, and are surrounded by people many times they don't know what to do, and it's really traumatic for the kid, it's very worrisome for the parents, because they, every day, they kind of fear, you know, I send my kids to school or to a party, and I kind of... I'm always afraid to let them go by themselves because they could just die from an allergy, I guess. So 
it's really stressful to have this. I had the friend or I have a friend. The kid is better nowadays, but it was really stressful for her to have a kid with these severe allergies. She was when the doctor said uh, they did the treatment when the doctor said, okay, now it's it won't be as life threatening anymore. Like she was like crying and so relieved. And um, so I think this will be really great if this works and won't be too expensive for people to actually use. So an experimental skin patch is showing promise to treat toddlers who are highly allergic to peanuts, uh, training their bodies to handle an accidental bite. A peanut allergy is one of the most common and dangerous food allergies. Pens of allergic tots are constantly on guard against exposure that can turn birthday parties and play dates into emergency room visits. There's no cure. The only treatment is for children four and older who can consume uh, a special peanut powder to protect against a severe reaction. The patch name Viaskin aims to deliver that kind of treatment through the skin instead. The major test with youngsters ages 1 to 3 to help those who couldn't tolerate even a small fraction of peanut to eventually safely eat a few a few researchers reported on Wednesday. If additional testing pans out, this would fill a huge unmet need, uh, says allergist uh, Dr. Matthew Greenhart at Children's Hospital Colorado, who helped to lead the study. Um, yeah, so I don't know if I even need to say so much. It's kind of late, but yeah, I think this will be great for these very young kids and for their parents to not be constantly afraid that their kids will die from an accidental bite of something. So, hi, Dr. Heidi, welcome. Oh, Joyce, please go. Ahead. I was just gonna say I was at a at a party where a little boy was telling people that his little brother had a peanut allergy. And you can imagine the little boy was, you know, having impact and worry himself. And I think maybe the little boy was even more worried than the parents because he was the one who was going around telling people. Anyway, it's, it's uh, kind of scary for them. Yeah, thanks. It's it's also it's also helpful because it brings something like this helps to bring credibility to something that shouldn't need um, the assistance of increased proof of credibility. But how many times have you heard people make fun of people with allergies, peanut allergies, and and uh, complain about uh, you know just the difficulty of making sure that people's allergy needs are respected and i i hear this a lot i hear it a lot in schools and it's you know as you're saying it is life-threatening and it's so easy to be kind and it and it's so easy and important to take a minute and make sure that people's needs are accommodated so this is this is really exciting thank you for sharing this uh great to see you dr heidi thanks for coming Thank you, Victoria and Katerina and Joyce. Um, yeah, you reminded me of something very important, actually. Uh, it may not relate it to the skin uh, batch and allergies, but it's really important to raise the awareness. While Joyce talking about the little boy 
very worried about his brother. I feel the health awareness, it's really important. It's a very strange cases uh, nowadays. Um, I'm doing some research for the public health and um, some of the kids uh, for parents actually overdose the antibiotics. They cause them um, diabetes because of uh, the excessive use of antibiotics. So people not taking it serious sometimes. And I don't know how they get around. Sometimes, um, like in Australia, it's with prescription. And you can't take antibiotics without prescription. But in some countries, they actually um, can go and get the antibiotic over the counter. And the, the research shows that people who are actually the parents with less information and overdose uh, over three weeks, the antibiotics, it's actually caused diabetes for the kids, unfortunately. And it's very sad. It's really, I was in tears <laughs> when seeing those kids just because of um, the level, I don't want to say the level of ignorance and not uh, just attending to the precaution that antibiotics are killers sometimes. Um, because what's happening on a molecular level, uh, the antibiotic go and uh, to the pancreatic cells and react to it as it's reacting with uh, the bacteria, which is very sad. So um, I thought the health awareness, it's really important, even for people who are not professionals, they are not in the medical field, listening to the news and updating themselves that it's really serious overdosing medications it's really serious overdosing the antibiotic which they feel that it's boosting their immunity but it caused the opposite and sorry for taking the stage too long but maybe someone listening to us now and uh, um, treat the antibiotics differently from now on thank you so much no thank you we appreciate you bringing that wisdom to the stage and sharing it thank you Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I, yeah, I, I agree that staying updated and um, like respecting, you know, people's health um, and, um, you know, health complications is really important. And I could tell you a lot of we have very stories of very, like very ignorant people that um, that were convinced that you know this this health problem is wasn't real i mean i have another friend our kids have a lot of allergies too and uh she they moved back to germany and the their friends there or like school parent friends didn't believe in allergies so she went, they went, they invited them for dinner and said, yeah, this is all, yeah, I respected all the, you know, the, the allergy concerns you have and on purpose put in all the things that the kid was allergic to and the kid had huge complications and needed to stay in the hospital for a while because of that. And I, I could tell you a lot of stories of uh, people. But anyways, to stay updated on health, uh, to move this again to maybe a positive story. I didn't test this, but I know that Google um, has been 
collaborating with NIH a lot. They, um, for many years now, they allowed to go through all kinds of data sets that NIH has um, from all kinds of clinical trials um, and so on. And they developed, of, um, you know, all these tools to design proteins and so on. And they unveiled um, this um, MedPalm 2. Um, so, but as I said, I didn't try it out myself yet. Um, so what they wanted to address, um, they wanted to basically have an alternative tool for people that have health concerns instead of just Googling symptoms, because that's what most people do. And, um, and the fear that comes then with Googling symptoms via Google, uh, you know, um, that, uh, so this tool is supposed to be more reliable, that um, you can rule out dangerous diseases and unheard plagues um, and search for the common cold you're probably facing. So that's how they, they claim it here. Um, Google um, is replacing your regular uh, Google search with a friendly artificial intelligence platform. And um, they unveiled this biggest project that they have of the year known as Palm 2, um, like OpenAI's GPT-4. Um, Palm 2 is a powerful language model able to deal with cold reasoning, multiple language, and huge amounts of text. And while language model technologies are being crammed into everything from cybersecurity to web search engines um, and so on, um, this is um, supposed to make huge advantages in the medical field. MedPalm2 is a company's second version of an AI platform designed specifically to provide answers to medical questions. When tested on the United States Medical Licensing Examination, the model scored 85.4% in line with the knowledge of a medical expert. To turn this model into an expert, Google trained it on, well, other experts, a panel of clinicians from the UK, US, and India were given a long set of medical questions and scenarios. The model was then trained to answer questions in a similar way to these experts. The clinicians then cross-referenced the model's answers on a set of values, including a low likelihood of medical harm, alignment with scientific consensus, precision, and lack of bias. Of course, with an AI model, um, while an AI model can understand the logic of science and medicine, it isn't exactly great on the ethical or moral side of things. Further training was done to help the model align with human ethical values in an attempt to improve its bedside manner. Um, yeah, so uh, while it is certainly impressive, doctors don't need to worry about losing their jobs just yet. This technology is still in its early stages. Google will first open up the model through Google Cloud, looking to get users' feedback on its ability. In the future, further capabilities could be added. Right now, the model is limited to understanding of text, but future versions could understand your medical records, CT scans, and genomic data. 
um, yeah, I don't know if people think it's a good idea or not, but uh, yeah, just Googling symptoms is not a good idea. And um, yeah, maybe it could help people stay updated on, you know, their disorder, the kids' disorders, what's out there um, to treat them better when they should maybe go to the doctor in a more educated way than just, you know, Googling it. So I thought it was maybe good news. I agree. I agree. Education is power. And and we have all had that experience of Googling something and, and just becoming fearful and, and getting misinformation about something that doesn't really apply to what we're suffering. Um, and I think... If you're able to, if you're able to do research, if you're able to do research and learn, um, people are going to be able to get misinformation in lots of different ways that have existed before there was the Google search. So I would say that anything that adds to people's ability to educate themselves and put the power of their education in their own hands, um, then you know, power of autodidactic learning is is real and strong and i'm for it yeah and it makes me think of you know i don't know how they handle it exactly but you know there's the story of how medical students end up feeling like they have every disease imaginable because they're reading about it so much uh you know and of course when you know, a lot of diseases can be so many different things, anywhere from a fatal cancer to, you know, something that just goes away on its own and be ignored. So I don't know, I don't know quite how they balance that, that, you know, fear versus information issue. <laughs> anyway, thanks. Yeah, well, I can, I can give an example. And, and also Kyle brings up um, an interesting question about privacy which is something worth, worth um, wondering. But for example, um, with hypothyroidism, the doctors do not tell people that you're not supposed to have, well, you're not supposed to, that it, that it, that it actually hinders um, your medication. It, if you have hypothyroidism and you are medicated with thyroid hormone, with artificial thyroid hormone, and you have milk or any dairy product for breakfast or a calcium supplement within four hours of taking that medication that you hinder the effectiveness of that hormone. So you're in effect taking a smaller dosage. Your doctor's not going to tell you this. I've, I've spoken to lots of people, so that's my own um, informal data collection. But I, I would really challenge anybody, um, you know, if you have friends that, that have hypothyroidism in any form, ask them, did your doctor ever tell you this? Or did a doctor ever tell you that taking um, epinephrine, taking Sudafed, for example, is not a good thing for people with hypothyroidism because it can cause tachycardia, which is terrifying. So those things are, if it, you know, once you learn to do research in a responsible way, and know that you know you don't want to scare yourself <laughs> with thinking you have something that you don't. But you know, again, we shouldn't let fear um, prevent 
the dissemination of, of wisdom. So, you know, the fear of something going wrong, it would be better to err on the side of, of arming people with wisdom, I believe, and I trust that to be true. Because as I said, people can get misinformation in, in lots of different ways that have nothing to do with the internet. So, um, yeah, so just, just that alone, just the ability to, to gain more information if you do, if you're if you're willing and interested to do a little bit more research, cross-referencing medications before you take them, for example. I don't know if, you know, I've had that happen where I've been prescribed something that should not be prescribed because of the one medication that I take and that the physician um, didn't take care. So those, having that ability to, to take responsibility for our own health in that way is, is something that I support. Yeah, and I, I used to, years ago, before the internet, I, I would uh, ask the pharmacist for the package insert. And there's, when you get a drug, there's this long thing with very fine print. And uh, you have to get used to looking at them and realize, though, that they're going to have a lot of stuff that you don't have to worry about, but it's still good to be able to look at them. <laughs> but now you don't have to get this thing with a lot of really tiny print. <laughs> anyway, thanks. Yeah, and just having, since you said that, um, I have found that pharmacists love to be asked questions about medications and, and, what, and what they're prescribed for and synergistic, possible synergistic effects, I think, because pharmacists have all their training, and, but they're not physicians, so they don't really get to use it in their, you know, in their field of work unless we ask them. And I've found them to be really knowledgeable and, and extremely patient. Uh, yeah, it's interesting um, because I'm not sure how it is right now, but pharmacists in Portugal used to be really important and it was also a public job. So you could would get assigned a pharmacy, you know, in places where you would need to have them. So they were kind of for many people, especially in villages and so on, like the first person you go if something is going on and um, and they would be allowed to, you know, give you, you know, not antibiotics anymore, but a lot of things they were allowed to assess and then, and then give to you. Uh, so I remember we would, you know, first go to our family pharmacist. We would have like a pharmacist that knew all of our family and, and ask him like if there was a rash or you know like all kinds of things we would go to him and he would tell us what we would need or if we actually need to go to the doctor or not so yeah we would have a very good relationship with our pharmacist uh, he knew our, all, all of our family so I don't know if that's the case in other countries too but um, yeah anyways that reminds me of something that I'd read about um, comparing care that people receive over time from a family practice, from, from one doctor compared to going to specialists, and that the care, it was shown that, that the care and treatment are of a higher quality. And I, I can't say what the determining factors were, but we know how we feel when we feel healthy and right. Um, 
but that but I wonder if that using this AI could be analogous to having one physician, you know, because all of your data, even though doctors, you know, compare data, but but if if there's some AI model that's collecting all of your history, all of your medical history in one place, and then you can access that, and then your doctors could access that, and you don't have to send it this and, you know, there, and remember to have your records shipped over. Um, you know, maybe that's something, um, sort of a byproduct benefit of this kind of model. Uh, hi. Hello, Mohammed. Welcome. Well, um, uh, thank you for this topic. Uh, it's, I think it's really important to talk about AI, artificial intelligence. I think now they are starting to play an important role in medical diagnosis, treatment planning. Um, the, I think at least uh, as a dentist now, there are many FDA approved software has been re released recently to aid dentists in the diagnosis of the uh, x-rays and try to locate some pathosis. And um, it's really impressive how this technology is evolving. But at the same time, you know, I would always say we should be a little bit cautious because, um, you know, like the, I think the success uh, of the software here is not to pass the board exam, you know, like this is not of the aim of the software. So when we are dealing with a disease and patient life, we should be a little bit cautious. And I think before progressing more into these technologies, usually we need to assess the accuracy and the reproducibility because, you know, at the end of the day, you are dealing with someone's life. Uh, I think we still have a lot of stuff in this thing. It's the, the, I think the, what we have now in our hands is really promising. Uh, but many of the softwares and algorithms, it's based on deep learning. Like it's depending on about how you are feeding the data to these models and algorithms. And actually, if you providing a case, for example, that doesn't have the logic and the sequence of the data that has been gathered or collected by the software, sometimes it could give you like a wrong, you know, like diagnosis or something like this. And definitely, you know, this model has been trained on an English language based, you know, like system. And definitely when you are dealing with a patient or someone else, who doesn't use the same logic or the same sequence of language or expressions or something like this, the results could be different as well. So I would be a little bit cautious about the release of the version to people. And I think it's neat first to be double checked. Uh, even if I know that now Googling the data over the internet, it's still biased and it doesn't give people the perfect answer but still there is no one is taking the responsibility behind this but if i'm releasing a platform that could give you a medical decision based on the data you are giving to me i think the question is gonna who's gonna take the responsibility of this diagnosis who's gonna be taking the responsibility of even if it is not a diagnosis who's gonna take the responsibility of giving such advice i don't know uh, it's promising it's amazing but I think we need to be a little bit more cautious and we need to do a lot of 
studies regarding the accuracy, reproducibility, you know, reliability to be able to show, to be able to be sure that we are on a solid ground to move forward. I don't know. That's it. It seems to me like it depends on how it is framed and how it is presented. Because I was thinking there's websites already, say like WebMD or um, the Mayo Clinic has a website where they go through all these different diseases and and it's sort of like, you know, you're, it's up to you to how do you use that information, you know, so I would think it's like how it's presented and framed as long as people don't get the wrong idea about what it's really doing. Um, you know, just uh, random Google search searches, you know, might be more harmful. But like, like you say, though, if the person is feeling as though they are getting a diagnosis, then, then that is a whole another story. So anyway, yeah, I, I agree. Definitely. There are many trusted websites that provide information about disease like WebMed and other uh, websites. But I would say they usually doesn't give the information based on what you feel. They usually give information about the disease, the prevalence, the usually the major, you know, like therapeutic uh, treatment lines, which is great. It's amazing. But they doesn't gather like information regarding what you feel or the signs, the symptoms you keep complaining and they provide you like a potential diagnosis. So I think there is a big difference here between just providing information about diseases as a general or gathering information and give you answer based on the data it's collected. I would think that the thing that's holding us back from progression is uh, the human factor. Um, all of us have something to lose. I mean, many of you have hundreds of thousands of dollars in education, you know, so there's a lot to lose. Most, you know, first four years are, are paying back the debt. So people are still in debt. And so that's why they wouldn't side with technology. Um, but technology's evolution in evolution is, is it's climbing the ladder faster than the brain is doing. We know this, we see this in technology. Uh, we tend to hold dear and true to something that, you know, we spent 20 years trying to grasp onto to have an equal voice with other individuals. And I think that it's gonna smash us. I think it's gonna just, it's going to make all these individuals with PhDs just go away. It's it, it, we're going to have to find other lines of work, physical labor that the machine can't do. I think that's one of the major variables. Sorry about the dog. We love dogs. We love children. And I see Katarina. Thank you. I see a new article. Oh, this is amazing. Yes, please read it. Thank you, Brock. Welcome to the stage. And Katarina, please share this article. Yeah, thank you. I thought this was kind of really in a very interesting bet from Microsoft. And I didn't hear it being discussed a lot in the news. So I thought it would be interesting to share. So, um, you know, we've been all dreaming about nuclear fusion for a 
many decades and Microsoft apparently thinks that technology is nearly ready to plug into the grid. Microsoft just signed a jaw-dropping agreement to purchase electricity from a nuclear fusion generator. Um, it's called the holy grail of energy because it's potentially limitless source of clean energy that uh, scientists have been chasing for the better part of a century. And um, a company called Helion Energy thinks it can deliver that holy grail to Microsoft by 2028. It announced a power purchase agreement with Microsoft this morning that would seed plug into the world's first commercial fusion generator to a power grid in Washington. The goal is to generate at least 50 megawatts of power, a small but significant amount, more than 42 um, megawatts and that the US first uh, two offshore wind farms have the capacity to generate today. Um, to say that a tall order would be an understatement of the year, I would say it's the most audacious thing I've ever heard, says University of Chicago theoretical physicist Robert, Robert Rosner. In these kinds of issues, I will never say never, but it would be astonishing if they would succeed. Experts optimistic estimates for when the world might see its first nuclear fusion power plant range from the end of the decade to several decades from now. Helium's success depends on achieving remarkable breakthroughs in an incredibly short span of time and then commercializing its technology to make it cost competitive with other energy sources. Nevertheless, Helium is unfazed with a binding agreement that has financial penalties if we can't build a fusion system. Helium founder um, and CEO David Kirtley tells The Verge, We've committed to be able to build a system and sell it commercially to Microsoft. How might a fusion uh, system work? Simply put, nuclear fusion mimics the way stars create their own light and heat in our sun. Hydrogen nuclei fuse together, creating helium and generating a tremendous amount of energy. Uh, and without having the issue of, um, you know, nuclear waste. Scientists have been trying to replicate this process in a controlled way since the 1950s. Um, this is the opposite of nuclear power plants we have today that release energy through fission or splitting atoms apart. A major downside of fission is that it leaves behind unstable nuclei that can stay radioactive for millions of years. Fusions, fusion avoids the radioactive waste problem because it's essentially just creating new helium atoms. The most advanced attempts at generating electricity through nuclear fusion involve shooting powerful laser beams at a tiny target or relying on magnetic fields to confine superheated matter called plasma with a machine called a tokamak. And we had here a speaker, um, if you missed that room, that uh, collaborated with uh, Google um, AI researchers to kind of come up with the ideal shape of these plasmas uh, to improve basically the reaction in the tokamak. Um, it was a really interesting um, room that we had here and right you listening to it. Um, so Helion uses um, 
So the company is developing a 40-foot device called a plasma accelerator that heats fuel to 100 million degrees Celsius. It heats deuterium and helium-3 into a plasma and then uses pulsed magnetic fields to compress the plasma until fusion happens. The company has a YouTube video that's in the article that illustrates the process in detail and helium claims that the machine should eventually be able to recapture the electricity used to trigger the reaction, which can be used to recharge the device's magnet. Uh, we electrically recover all the energy we put into the fusion so that we can actually build systems that are smaller and cheaper and we can iterate on them a lot quicker. This is an exciting announcement and many in the community will be keen to see technical details, says MIT School of Engineering Distinguished Professor Anne White um, in an email to The Verge. So yeah, they're waiting for them to publish their work so that they can analyze it. And um, in December, lasers achieved a huge breakthrough called fusion ignition, meaning that for the first time, researchers were able to trigger fusion reaction that resulted in a net energy gain. That's a major milestone helium has yet to accomplish, though. Well, anyways, I think it was... And if that works, it can solve so many problems, especially it can be scale if it can be scaled, you know, we can produce, we can do carbon capture cheap, we can clean up the environment cheap in a cheap way and, and, and produce clean energy for everyone very cheap so that it would basically become kind of a free essential uh, source everyone has available and uh, go from there i mean it would be amazing i crossing fingers that microsoft bets actually um you know is a sound one so isn't helium 3 only obtained in space not on earth it's like something that we we've gathered from the moon actually so isn't it extremely expensive per quantitative unit? It's extremely expensive. Just from my understanding, I don't even know what's real. To tell you the truth, as a physicist, I don't know what's real. Because so, all the information uh, is so weird. Uh, helium, it's produced on Earth from three sources, lithium, spallation, cosmic rays, and better decay from tritium. But we don't um, get much cosmic rays underneath our atmosphere. So if we're not going to be speaking actual um, numbers with data, what we often find here in this space is when we talk about any type of what we might call alternative or clean energy, that often people want to come up and say, that's really expensive. But if we consider things that we've also been talking about, health risks, emotional health risks, physical health risks, livelihood, then these are things that, that really are worth comparison. So, so sure, um, thank you for skepticism. It's always important. And at the same time, we're exploring this technology. Yes, I'm sure it's lots of money. And the health, the, the costs of people's 
entire lives, children who are growing up with asthma, uh, Dr. Heidi mentioned diabetes, this, this list goes on and on. So let's, yes, I'm sure, lots of room for skepticism. Let's move forward and let's hear about how it can be applied, the uses, what other things it can replace. The benefits of that um, are, are amazing and, and really exciting to consider. Madam, may I ask just one more question, if you don't mind? Yeah, sure, go ahead. So I'm an experimental physicist working in experimental space and aerospace, and I've written formulas. Um, I now study neuroscience to the tooth. I six hours a day studying neuroscience. How do I not deserve to be here? Well, nobody said that, that you, nobody, like, we are inclusive. <laughs> um, you know, you don't have to have a PhD like me or probably you uh, to be here. You don't have to be a medical doctor or engineer. Um, the, you know, we just like to hear actual facts and, um, you know, just bring in your doubts, it's good, but then if we ideally can have add some facts to it, that would be great. Um, so I shared in the chat a bunch of uh, two links uh, where sources could be coming from in the future for industrial helium-3. Um, and um, there is it's there will be a projected helium shortage um, um, tritium right now is the only industrial source so far but they are discussing in the last uh, paper I shared um, uh, 25 and 50 percent of the helium shortage could uh, be addressed with uh, different methods and yeah one includes lunar mining but it also includes um, natural gas extraction could um, be um, helium-3 could be produced with um, so yeah there, there are different papers discussing this um, that we also have to address that in the future but you, you guys side with people that have disabilities because I have a disability, like a mental disability. We don't side or unside with anyone. It's just you know we're welcome. You're welcome to share your thoughts and um, yeah, and we are here to discuss all of these right now. Science news, and usually we invite then. Um, the actual scientists that are working on these different projects to then give a more traditional talk. So these are the type of rooms we have here in this club. So feel free to participate. Yeah, I, I, I mean, how many PhDs does a person have? I don't know. Because most people like Victoria or Joyce you know, don't put We are really PhDs. not here to talk personal, like, we talk about science and not about personal stuff so much.
I'm sorry. Um, it's not, you know, about different egos, hopefully, in this room. That's certainly what we don't want to do. Just yeah, thank you for mentioning that. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Katarina. Go ahead. Yeah, because for that, I think at least myself, we could have just stayed at, you know, myself at NYU or, you know, wherever and continue just discussing it with PhDs there. But that's not the purpose of this club, at least not why I founded it, to to have like some egos and elitarianism. Um, for sure, that's not what we want and we don't usually discuss too much personal issues because that just leads to conflicts that are unnecessary okay so um to have kind Katarina, of um, can i say something quickly yeah please go please, sorry for the interruption because you know i love this house um, and before it was a house i love the science society when it was just a club um, what I love about it, and I feel um, I'm, I'm doing a marketing segment here um, about this club that the academic essence and the academic essence has to do nothing with titles. It's not with PhD or masters or academic accreditation or certification or registrations we have. It's all about uh, facts and everyone working in the academia have this uh, built in in his mind that he has to talk with fact not like the chat gpt first version and second version and um, you do this by referencing and try to actually find that true academics people who work on the field and they are having labs and they having publications and uh, you know spreading rumors here like there are many rooms talking about science in Clubhouse, but they don't have the level of professionalism like the Science Society. And that's what I like about this place, that I can take away some of the recommendations here to the real life on real field research and in my lab and work on it because I trust the uh, reference, I trust who is talking. And the other side uh, as well, it's sometimes um, as a scientist, we've been taking in the area of um, philosophy and philosophy, we all agree it's the mother of science. That's why we have the PhD, which is the philosophy doctorate. It has lots of philosophy, but sometimes it's not having this grounded facts, which we need in our research and in real life work. So um, I applaud you and Victoria and Joyce for keeping this place professional academic and the trusted um, reference for all of us. Thank you and sorry for interruption. Oh, please, Dr. Heidi, that's it's a contribution. We would never call it an interruption. And I, I appreciate that. And it's important. It's important to us that people recognize that this space is we exist to help eliminate barriers between people and science and and bring in people and mention the degrees of the speakers that are invited here because they're they're representing their research and we're honoring them when we mention their their background and their educational background and their accomplishments as far as us and people who are speaking and people who are welcome on stage that has nothing to do with anyone's educational background it has to do with the desire to learn and and share our love of science and sharing information and and that's why we're here
So I appreciate Dr. Heidi that you were, you were mentioning that and I hope that people will, um, yeah, will continue to come and, and contribute and, and uh, give ideas if you have ideas to share as far as uh, articles that you would like to hear, topics that you would like to hear, then, then we're interested in all of that. So thank you. Yeah, wonderful. So, um, you know, the, I had a couple more articles because there is so much every week and, um, and um, maybe we can do one danger one <laughs> and, um, and maybe then after that a cool one uh, to kind of end on a positive note. So, um, this one I think was really interesting. I think it's good to know basically. Um, um, talking about, uh, you know, being educated in risk factors um, that, you know, we don't know about um, that could be, you know, going on. So, um, hidden danger of muscle fat, um, myosteosis or high muscle fat accumulation in asymptomatic adults in significantly increases the risk of major health issues and mortality. According to a study in radiology, uh, the risk, um, so the, the journal name is radiology, the risk was um, independent of age or obesity markers like BMI and was comparable to risk from smoking or type 2 diabetes. Asymptomatic adults with high accumulation of fat in their muscles are at an increased risk of major adverse events and death. Um, and uh, one of the methods used by physicians to estimate body fat in patients is the BMI. And, um, and it's really not accurate reflection of body composition uh, because patients with similar BMIs can have vastly different comorbidities and levels of health risk. A more thorough uh, reflection of body composition can be obtained from abdominal CT or MRI scans, which can reveal a variety of different fat accumulations. And um, the mostly the medical community focuses on visceral fat, which is fat that accumulates around abdominal organs and liver cirrhosis, which is high as a high amount of fat. Um, in the liver. Another form of fat is um, dysmeostiosis, which occurs when fat accumulates in the muscles and um, is usually found in patients who are already sick and undergoing medical imaging for another illness. Little is known about its health risk in asymptomatic patients. Um, so um, you really need to use a CT or MRI to, to study this. And um, the colleagues um, that did the study sought to identify the association between mysteriosis um, and mortality risk while simultaneously studying visceral fat, liver cirrhosis, myopenia, muscle wasting, and obesity. And in the retrospective study, the researchers used an AI tool to extract body composition metrics from abdominal CT scans and asymptomatic adults who had undergone a routine screening for colorectal cancer 
between 2004 and 2016. Incidences of major adverse events such as heart attack, stroke or aneurysm and death were recorded during an average follow-up period of 8.8 years. On the 8,982 adults included in the study, a total of 507 died during the follow-up period. Mystoriosis was associated with an increased risk of major adverse events and was felt in 55% of the study participants who died. The absolute mortality risk at 10 years in individuals Mysteriosis was 15.5 compared to obesity 7.6, liver steroids 8.5, or myopenia um, 9.7. While the presence of other health factors as, as visceral fat and liver steroids were also associated with higher mortality risk, mysteriosis remained the highest. Interestingly, the relationship was independent from age or markers of obesity such as BMI. In other words, this means that fat accumulation in the muscles is not merely explained by being older or having fat overload in other locations of the body. So the mortality of patients with mysosis was comparable to mortality risk associated with smoking and having type 2 diabetes. Despite the growing evidence of the risk factors that are associated with it, it is a condition that is still overlooked in the medical community. Um, so we are witnessing the onset of personalized medicine, whose aim is to tailor medical management at the individual level based on a constellation of information, such as genetics, medical history, physical characteristics, complex and large-scale molecular evaluation. Here we show that mysosis is a parameter retrievable for medical images performed routinely in hospitals is a robust indicator of individuals' mortality risk as a relatively short term. AI-based CT body composition identifies um, mysosis as key mortality predictor in SOMED adults as the title of the paper. And um, it was done at the University of Wisconsin Medicine. Um, so yeah, it's it's really interesting. I don't think they go into, um, you know, if there's a genetic factor and how to avoid it. Uh, for now, it's just, um, you know, it's it's like the first type of study going into this would be interesting how people can address this muscle fat and um, if there's maybe gen a genetic test you could do to predict um, that people will have that and um, yeah and how to kind of change that but um, that I guess will come in the future but it's a good start thank you yeah that's interesting so I guess I didn't catch it if if it was in there but basically they they have no idea why some people have it and some don't basically at this point Yeah, exactly. They didn't go into that yet. I, I guess that will be the follow-up study. Hopefully it will be the follow-up study. So we don't know if we have it, and we don't show risk factors, and we don't show symptoms. Was this the good yes. news or the bad news article, Katarina? That was the bad news one. <laughs> 
and but hopefully it will turn in the future to a good news one because hopefully they will find i don't know genetic factors whatever it is that leads to this um in the future solving this puzzle absolutely yeah and you know these new these new methods that that are coming out that people get you know whole body mris and you know you know personalized medicine that people are doing um, I didn't catch it. Would that sort of thing detect it, or it's a specialized method of detecting it? No, I think any CT scan can do it because they did it backwards. I know exactly why they did it backwards. I don't know if you did ever uh, ethical, um, um, you know, if you ever wrote a protocol to get ethical approval for studies. And it's way easier if you can go backwards because anything that could predict mortality, especially in mental health, you never want to go forward because then you have the the problem that if you can maybe predict, let's say, suicide or here mortality, you have to warn the patients, but you're actually still doing the study, so you don't know if you should warn the patient and what it will do to the patient's mental health, if you would tell now, you know, these people that have the fat and you don't know yet, you didn't finish the study, what will you do? And answering those ethical questions will be impossible. You will never get approval. So ideally, if you can, you do it backwards. <laughs> That's why they did it. <laughs> And that was the only way to do the study. So apparently you can just use a CT scan that was done from your abdomen and then you, you can check for the muscle fat. Katarina, a very close friend of mine, a genetic counselor, and uh, I applause what you said because uh, what you said in the last one, two minutes, it's really what's happening on real life in hospitals they have this ethical and moral frameworks and protocols which they cannot cross on the same time they know and predict and they have prediction models and they know what's going on and it's all about the common sense this is again one of the things which ai cannot actually replace a genetic counselor because it's uh, having a lot of um, um, human essence and human element that cannot replace a judge so there are lots of things with a big human um, essence in it, which cannot be replaced. So thank you again for the flow of ideas and thoughts. If I had to make a guess, I would say it'll turn out that inflammation is related to this <laughs> because it is to almost everything anyway. I agree strongly, Joyce. I agree. Okay, yeah. So um, if you have a CT scan at any point, check your muscle fat, I would say. Ask your doctor to check. Uh, I know I did some. I should ask. <laughs> at some point, back in time, I should ask. Um, Either, yeah, either ask them or don't <laughs> until they know more. 
<laughs> yeah, that's all. Yeah, that's exactly. You know, we had discussions like this uh, during like trainings of you know ethical protocols, but also uh, during our PhD training, we had this ethical uh, classes and things like this were discussed. Like, do you tell a patient uh, that has this uh, genetic ALS, you know, like, you know, for sure that patient will, you know, decline health and die at like 40, but you can't do anything about it. What do you do? Like, do you tell the patient? Do you not tell the patient? If you tell the patient, do you want to know, then you kind of already told the patient. It's really hard if you can't do anything about it. Do you want to know or you don't want to know? I don't know. <laughs> Out of curiosity and the fun, I will send you some of the medical exams, the medical entry exams for graduate entry and undergrad. And it's, it's weighing 70% of the medical exams in Australia. Uh, in order to get into medicine, 70% of it, it's actually scenarios about the ethical and moral frameworks and 30% on actual uh, cell level and physiology and the other areas of medicine, which is quite interesting. So I'll send you some of those funny scenarios, which every one of the scenarios can be a room by itself and you will hear different opinions and there is no right and wrong. It's all common sense and it's all um, using the regulations the right way and um, you get it by experience and uh, metacognition and comprehension. So uh, I will do this. Thank you, Katerina. Yeah, and that's why when you get, you know, I, I have signed up for genetic tests like, um, well, you know, there's 23andMe and then I, I've signed up for the All of Us study you know and i should say everyone should join that if they can they're trying to get a million people to help gather a lot of data well this is just in the us but anyway um yeah and they they give you a long long discussions because uh you know before they you know before they even decide or before they send you any information you know they try to prepare you you know and in this case it's okay because you know, they don't really know your results yet. So it's not like them asking you is kind of giving it away or anything. Yeah. Um, so I thought this was a really cool new technology and yeah, I didn't have a chance this week to write to any of the authors, but I think it would be cool to get these um, here. Uh, I think, um, that, I don't know if everyone agrees that this is a positive, um, a positive story. So um, researchers have created a device that emulates the human's eye ability to see color by narrowband perovskite photodetectors and a neuromorphic algorithm. Um, the, photo 
detector is sensitive to red, green and blue light mimic our own cone cells, while the neuromorphic algorithm simulates our neural network to process information into high-quality images. Unlike modern cameras that require external filters, this technology um, could improve resolution and reduce manufacturing costs. The device also generates electricity as it absorbs light, potentially leading to battery-free camera technology. So the new device developed by Penn State researchers simula simulates the human eye ability to perceive color by using narrowband perovskite photo detectors. This technology might bypass the need for filters used in current cameras, which reduce resolution and add to manufacturing complexity and cost. And it generates power, um, so you don't need batteries. And they draw the the inspiration from nature. Um, um, and um, we borrowed a design from nature. Our retinas contain cone cells that are sensitive to red, green, and blue light, and the neural network that start processing what we are seeing even before the information is transmitted to our brain. As says Kai Wang, assistant research professor in the Department of Materials Science at, um, and Engineering at Penn State. This natural process creates a colorful world we can see. To achieve this in an artificial device, the scientists created a new sensor array for narrowband perovskite uh, photo detectors, which mimic our cone cells and connected to a neuromorphic algorithm. Um, the photo detectors convert light energy into electrical signals and are essential for cameras and other optical technologies. Um, so I, in this work, we found a novel way to design perovskite material that's sensitive to only one wave of light. We created three different types and they are designed in a way that they can only be sensitive to red, green or blue colors. Um, the silicon photo detectors in cameras absorb light but don't distinguish colors and these can so and there are no external filters needed and when the light is filtered there is some loss of information and can be avoided this can be avoided in our design so we propose this work may represent a future camera sensing technique that can help people to get the higher spatial resolution um, and the device structure is similar to solar cells that use light to generate electricity once you shine a light on it, it will generate a current, so like our eyes, you don't need to apply energy to capture this information from light. Uh, this research could also trigger few further developments in artificial retina biotechnology. Devices based on this technology could someday replace dead or damaged cells in our eyes to restore vision, according to the scientists. And this was um, published in the Journal of Science Advances. Um, and um, purpose guides um, are semiconductors and when light hits these materials it uh, creates uh, electron hole pairs sending these electrons and holes in opposite directions um, is what generates this electrical current in the study, the scientists created thin film perovskites uh, with heavily unbalanced electron hole transport, meaning the
the holes are moving through the material faster than the electrodes. By manipulating the architecture of the imbalance of this imbalance um, and or how the layers are stacked, the scientists found they could harness properties that turn the materials into narrow band photodetectors. They created then the sensor array with these materials and used a projector to shine an image through the device. Information collected in the red, green, and blue layers was fed into a three-sub-layer neuromorphic algorithm for signal processing and image reconstruction. Um, the neuromorphic algorithms are um, a kind of computing technology that seeks to emulate the operation of the human brain. We tried different ways to process the data. Uh, we tried directly merging the signals from the three color layers, but the picture was not very clear. But when we do this neuromorphic processing, the image is much closer to the original. Because the algorithms mimic the neural network in human retinas, the findings could provide new insights into the importance of these neural networks to our vision, the scientists say. By joining our device and this algorithm together, we can demonstrate that the neural network functionality is really important in the vision processing in human eyes. Yeah, I thought this was a really uh, cool uh, new invention and um, artificial retinas um, are something that can really um, you know, improve lives and yeah, also have cameras um, or sensors that um, are free of energy supply without cables and so on um, will help a lot of people that maybe don't have a stable um, supply of electricity all the time. Um, so um, I think this is really wonderful and I hope this technology, like the principle get, uh, will be used in, in other, you know, um, edge technologies uh, to run more um, of the, the edge devices um, in a way that they can supply their own energy. I think that would be wonderful. So. And hi only welcome. Uh, thanks for welcoming me. Yeah. I was just listening right now. We'll talk. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Yeah, I don't know if anyone wants to add something to this one. Well, it is exciting. Yeah, great. Thanks for sharing. I had one more a nature article, but somehow go for it. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to open it and access it. Let me try one more time. I have lately, you know, I wrote nature. Uh, then they that my access didn't work and then they fixed it and now let me try with chrome and that was working and now apparently something is going on again it's really annoying okay so this one is the bedtime story it's the positive another positive story 
Okay, yeah, now I just need to access it. And if people need then the, the full story, let me know. I can send a PDF um, if I can access my vote. Okay. Are you able to access it or is it is it a problem on your end that would be helped if Oh yeah, now it's on Chrome it works. Now I I have access through you know my institution but um it stopped working and then I wrote them and then they fixed it and then it worked again and now it doesn't work on Safari but it works on Chrome. So um yeah. Oh, so there's nothing to pin, is what you're saying? No, no, I, I have it. Okay. It's just um, people won't see the full article, but if they want to have it, just reach out to me and I can send the PDF. It's not a problem. So, gut microbes eat nanoparticles leading to microbiome changes. Human can accidentally ingest nanomaterials in consumer products with unknown effects. And bacteria in the digestive tract can break down ingested carbon nanomaterials, according to research in mice. The researchers also hint that the excessive amounts of fatty acids formed by this breakdown could inhibit the normal function of the animal's intestinal stem cells. Nanomaterials such as carbon nanotubes and graphene measure less than 100 nanometers in at least one dimension and are finding uh, and are being increasingly found in consumer products. Uh, people can unwittingly ingest these materials, raising concerns about their safety. For insights on the materials fate in the gut, um Jing Kui at the National Center for Nanoscience and Technology of China and Beijing and her colleagues fed small amounts of carbon nanotubes and graphene oxide flakes to mice every day for 28 days they found that treated mice had significantly significantly more of the fatty acid butyrate in their gut than uh, did untreated mice and is normally produced when gut bacteria ferment high fiber foods bacteria grown in nanomaterial laced medium also have elevated material level um, the nanomaterials altered the rodents' gut microbiomes, boosting the growth of um, um, the specific type of bacteria at the expense of other microbes. Uh, what it then will do to us is, you know, unknown yet. It's just, um, they just show that... Uh, that it will change basically the composition of the the gut microbiome, and um, but this is a huge finding that wasn't done before. That these um, nanoparticles get incorporated into the metabolic carbon flow in gut microbiota for the produ uh, production of short chain fatty acids which then influences the gut homeostasis. Um, so uh, it could become a health risk and there's an urgent need for assessing the transformation of these nanoparticles 
and their health risk via the gut-centric physiological and anatomical pathway. Um, so yeah, so this is kind of concerning. Um, and um, yeah, I hope we'll, based on this study, there will be more studies in the future. Yeah. Yeah, if I had to guess whether microbes would metabolize them and feed on them, I would guess yes, because they do on everything, it seems. Uh, but, you know, of course, they have to show it. So anyway, that's interesting. Thanks. Yeah, this is very concerning. I'm, I'm also thinking about what is the origin of the nanoparticles and how many substances act as hormone disruptors and the information that we're learning about just how how much we're affected by our our microbi our gut microbiome health and how that has implications for our mental health as well and um, you know just on and on it is it's we've we've seen research about nanoparticle injection in, in ocean life, and, and we, it's showing up in, in fish. And, and so um, here we are part of this nanoparticle ingestion fest as well. You know, like in the sea, it's because of so much dumping. And, and um, you know, here it's, it's just things that are, I'm sure this is even, even things like um, nanoparticles used as pigment in in makeup, for example, you know, or any any product, you know, health, um, hair care, skin care products, and and then soft plastics, and just it's endless where this is on our environment. Oh yeah, this is a good one that you're about to share. <laughs> I'd read this. Let's just eat plants, you know? I don't understand why we need lab-grown meat really in the first place. Plants taste so great and, and, and there's just so many things. There's so much food that we can eat that isn't uh, flesh. But uh, go ahead with this lovely article, Katarina. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how this will change like over time with scaling and you know making processes more um, efficient and better and cleaner but a lot of the negative things I never really understood because you know I worked in different types of settings and cell cultures um, you know neural cultures and I worked for a company for a while to help uh, consulting uh, that does 3D printing of organs and, and have clinical trials going on. Um, and you have to realize that the cells you grow, they don't have an immune system. Um, they just grow by themselves. So anything in the air, any tiny little fungi spore, one little bacteria, can just go crazy on this and and on your your grow growing cell um system because you of course give the cells all the nutrients they need to um to grow well and to to 
to do well and grow fast but you know these are the same things bacteria and fungi and all these other uh, bad things basically <laughs> like so and they don't have an immune system so um, you need to constantly protect them a lot of labs use always uh, antibiotics i didn't used to do that um and you know you need to use a lot of energy to disinfect sterilize everything you have to be completely sterile the air has to be completely sterile constantly have to use bleach and ethanol and all kinds of stuff to keep to be the fake immune system <laughs> so a lot of chemicals is not healthy for the people that are working in this constantly and in, in this in this gas of bleach and and ethanol and all kinds of stuff after a while i couldn't i just couldn't do this work anymore i would get migraines all the time due to oversend and my asthma would get really bad so it's really not, it's really not the healthy environment for anyone because you you artificially have to protect these cells from what usually in a whole organism a immune system would take care of so um anyways and this study just suggests that lab-grown meat produces up to 25 more CO2 because of all those things I told you. Um, um, and for them, apparently, it's really shocking. A shocking new study suggests that lab-grown meat um, could actually be far worse for the environment than traditional livestock. You also have all these dishes that you have to just throw out because you couldn't possibly risk the contamination and all the tools you need come from a company that has to sterilize them um, and package them individually so every single pipette you use um, is individually sealed and packed in plastic and you use it to feed the cells one time and you throw it out because you can't possibly risk to contaminate any of your samples with this because then it just spreads throughout your whole, whole incubator you know it's like a huge waste of trash and plastic and, and I don't know um, so uh, by the studies estimate if current techniques were scaled up to supply the market they could produce between four and 25 times more CO2 than rearing and slaughtering animals through the study um, has not been peer-reviewed, um, but I think it's it's very logical. And uh, yeah, I would even assume that it's worth it <laughs> if you include all the trash you produce, um, all the plastic trash and so on. Animal cell culture is traditionally done with growth medium components, which have been refined. Yeah, additionally, also the growth media have to be sterilized and refined. And um, and um, these refinement methods contribute significantly to the economic and environmental costs associated with pharmaceutical products, since they are both energy and resource intensive. And assuming the continued use of highly refined growing media, the researchers estimate that each kilogram of um, of these cell culture uh, produced meats um, of uh, produce 400 
542 pounds, 248 kilograms to 3,325 pounds or 1.5 kilograms of carbon dioxide emissions. Based on these figures, they calculate the global warming potential of cultured meat is between 4 and 25 times greater than that of retail beef. So they didn't even include everything else. They just include the media that you use to feed them. They don't include all the bleach you use, all the individually sterilized um, tools you use and just throw out and the the incubators that you have to use also the gas it has to have a specific gas mixture that you feed the incubators um, they have a higher co2 in there uh, for the ph level to adjust so they don't include that and they don't include when you feed them that you have to be in a specific um, um, hood that that consumes energy and all the UV lamps to disinfect everything. So they didn't even include everything. So it's even way higher than that. That's my opinion. But anyways, um, yeah, it's pretty silly. <laughs> Just do, you know, things like the previous articles we discussed. Look at nature use how nature does things and then uh, you know make technology out of that and that you don't need for example a camera that needs energy supply and batteries you just use the system of the eye and you will have a high resolution camera where you don't need filters and that on top even supplies its own energy <laughs> like do it that way Yeah, I, you know, I, I like the the one that's already come out in some of the fast food places. The, I think they call it Impossible Burger, or or is that Beyond Burger or something? I think it tastes be better than hamburger, but but you know, I don't really typically eat it. But yeah, to me, it did seem kind of kind of a reach to go for this culture idea. Um, yeah, and then the other people say too that you know if you you raise the animals naturally and ethically and then then you know you don't need to feel too bad about it especially if it's a regenerative agriculture or something like that so anyway there's lots of possibilities or you can you know make your own burgers or just forget about burgers <laughs> Well, a lot of problem also, Katarina, I'm sure we're all believers now, what you just said. It's so sensible. And, and I, would, I wouldn't have, you know, when I first saw that, that article, I was really curious, but everything that you've listed, it makes so much sense to, to be, that, that you have to recreate, you have to create an artificial immune system. But, but also, um, Joyce, you make me think of the idea of scale is, is really part of the problem that that um, you know, it's it's the scale. It's economic scale. If if we have small farmers, small family farms, that's one thing. But but um, large organizations trying to create just massive demands of scale, then then what's required to produce that is going to be destructive to someone's environment. So it's um, you know things. There are a lot of things, a lot of crossover, and um, 
Yeah, I agree. Eat plants. They're really, really yummy. Thank you, Katarina. So interesting. Or at least if you eat meat, maybe not as much as a lot of people do. <laughs> Make it, you know, more a special occasion or, you know, not three meals a day and that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and Artemisia says in the chat, local real food, you know, local. It makes a huge difference. And um, yes, we could go on and on and about this topic. Welcome. Welcome up, Kyle. Hey, uh, thanks for, can you guys hear me all right here? Uh, actually, I have these I'm talking through headphones and I might not have the microphone out. Can you guys hear me okay? Loud and clear. Yes. Hello? All right, wonderful. Thanks for a wonderful room. Uh, I just had an interesting thought about this paper that I decided to share. I'll share. Uh, I wonder, because I was reading this, the idea of these endotoxins also being... Uh, damaging to the the cell culture of this lab-grown meat concept um it sounds to me like maybe that it could be seen where the endotoxins are functioning like an immune system for the individual bacterium and what if you could change the env the environment uh through like going back to like plasma pressure uh technologies where you actually restrict the boundary conditions within which things can grow. So you have like this dualistic uh, uh, procedure where as things are growing, uh, you're also controlling the, the growth from basically from like, from two different angles, like using like a bilinear vector. So it's an idea. And what are the two angles? Thank you. This is all wonderful. Like the, so one, the, like, one vector would be the amount, the, the rate of growth of the culture with the available, uh, whatever the, if there's electroculture involved or if it's just natural uh, chemical growth. And then, but if you could use, if it could be done in like a plasma, like some type of chamber where you're using some type of algorithmic, algorithmically structured uh, plasma pressure that can, can basically reverse the vector of like a bacteria producing an endotoxin. So you sort of keep the, a ba even if there's a, a bacteria that's contaminated the meat, like, but you, you restrict it from moving by having like uh, pressure put basically on like these predictive vectors that put, puts pressure on the exterior growth of the system, like external pressure on the system. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think I know where where you I understand where you're coming from, and I think there is for sure potential for making this um, more intelligent, this this growing systems, and maybe even coming up with. Um, I would say you know you could use you know a computation to maybe create an ideal artificial immune system with co-cultures of immune cells instead of doing it the way we're currently doing it. But then you cut down basically on the amount of cells you can grow that you actually want to harvest. And then 
taking out the immune cells and just harvest the cells that are good for you know the beef would be maybe a challenge but there could be ways of doing co-cultures to have them kind of kind of separate um but still uh, um, emitting enough of um, you know immune signals that it would you could down regulate all the very expensive um yeah this artificial very sterile environment um there's for sure i i would say the person that would be probably really great designing helping to design this is our speaker that is coming tomorrow mike levin he basically combines like uh, organisms and designs them with ai to uh, do specific tasks um, you know the size of the cell and the shape of the cell and so on um, to basically and then he gives these cells tasks um, and then they perform them the best basically he makes like this this he uses evolutionary algorithms to to calc to make models first and then and then try them out in the lab so i think like this type of approach could maybe make this growing meat and in the lab um better and better for the environment but we would need a lot of um uh innovation to to do that but i agree kyle i think we, we if you want to really go forward with this, we would need collaboration from a lot of different fields of engineering, like really engineering a more efficient lab, and then also um, engineering cells better and, and then artificial immune system better and so on. Or we can use seaweed that tastes like bacon. <laughs> I don't know what happened to this company, but there was a company that uh the well i pinned it on top that uh, made the seaweed type that tastes like bacon and has a higher nutritional value of kale i don't know what exactly the value is but because i i read this a long long time ago but i wanted to share it Has anybody happened to have ever heard of any type of, and I, this is definitely not an area of expertise for me by any means at all, but if like, is there any type of, like I'm imagining like a gel or some type of like material that it could be a buffer so that it would could just almost coat a meat culture, a cell culture and control its growth rate even though you're trying to maximize it, but prevent, prevent like divergent vectors. Like that's a lot what I've, what I've worked with is like the idea of scalar divergences where there's uh, limits to dive, like there's, there's, there's a hypothesis like hypercircularity concept where there's limits to scalar divergences before there's reconvergences. And then the reconvergences are basically have vector divergence and but the vector divergence is entropy and the entropy is basically just the three three-dimensional version of this 
and its interactions are also bounded by like hypercircularity principles. So you can you can create this zone basically where you can have these like bilinear vectors that uh, the either side of a boundary condition can have asymptotic freedom. And you can basically treat any boundary as a null boundary. Um, and if you had some type of even maybe like just a, a specific material, I wonder that that and maybe this will be something I could talk with. Uh, I think you said his name was Mike um, tomorrow. Uh, I might be wrong on that, but but something that's it could maybe maybe just that simple that just just like functions like a an edge like I I, I could see like bleach coming in as like an edge computation situation from my perspective where it's just like okay two chemicals are are uh, limiting each other's activity here the bleach is winning. Uh, but can you cr can you create a low cost, like very efficient very, uh, situation where you where you basically have a, a chemical that functions like this paranormal boundary to allow the, the the desired action to occur in the shortest amount of um, ener like uh, uh, energy distribution, I guess, in terms of like the cost that's going into it. Yeah, I think it's interesting and to to see it that way because you know as a biologist you're kind of stuck in your own ways and it's really helpful to talk then with somebody like you that kind of um has a very different approach of this type of problem solving and I think um there there's a lot that we can improve by collaborating more um and i think yeah you should come to the room tomorrow it's at 3 p.m est i don't know if you can make it but it will be interesting it would be interesting to ask him and talk with him directly because um he would he for sure tried out some things that you know i never asked him this uh, type of question but um maybe he tried a few approaches like this uh, and he could answer you um you know from like uh really trying it out in the lab if if um if this line of thinking you know um works then in real life so it would be an interesting discussion so I invite you to come and um I think, yeah, the it was a really great room. It's getting really late for me. It's almost 12. Uh, and I had a great time, very different types of discussions. And I'm looking forward to the next one, like to the next week science news one. But also to the room tomorrow. I hope people can come. It will be a really interesting discussion. And, Kyle, you should ask him this question. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I, I just want to say I, I kind of find it hard to believe that there's a seaweed that tastes like bacon. <laughs> I really never tasted seaweed that I liked. <laughs> oh my gosh, anyway. really? What you haven't had? Um, 
those there's dried seaweed packets are a little bit salty and it's it's yeah. sort of put together like a little snack and it's still don't like them <laughs> or not you don't like okay all right i won't push it um but <laughs> maybe one day you'll develop a taste um yeah kyle i just i wanted to repeat what katarina said that your approach is is just so interesting and it's it just speaks to why we have these rooms because we see things from from different angles and and you're you know you're coming from a really maybe a math math driven angle when you're looking at this and uh, you know and I'm, and I'm listening to different parts of the science that you know in that other article that we were discussing so it's just all all kinds of minds all different perspectives it makes this space more interesting and and so yeah thank you for being here and coming up on stage and anyone who's here now uh, audience thank you for being here and if you'd like to come up on stage and share some thoughts next time we hope to see you next wednesday six o'clock pst or nine o'clock est or whatever your gmt is and um yeah can't wait to share more science with you all and if you're available tomorrow be here i will be in class but i'll be with you in spirit yeah thank you so much uh yeah check out the 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 calendar of the club we'll have yeah as i said tomorrow um professor levin and then we'll have um on Monday, Dr. ELP talking about the um, warming of the Arctic and um, at the effect of the the large sinuous rivers um, in the warming Arctic and and what those effects then will be. Um, uh, then we'll have uh, Dr. Mertens, um, which. Um, he will give a really interesting talk also. Um, so yeah, just check out the calendar. Um, uh, we have many rooms in May, a little bit less in June and then July. I'll see, uh, we for sure have the science newsrooms, but um, I've, I'm gonna travel and, and I don't know how to, uh, how my time zone will be. So um, anyways, yeah. So Dr. Martins, she created a synthetic black hole in the lab that radiates uh, and she will share her um, her work um, on that. And then I'm going to travel, but we will still have a room on um, this uh, neuromorphic learning and metaplasticity now we talked in the article before about the artificial retina and how using neuromorphic approach was really important for that. And um, the, the whole team will come uh, talking about new types of neuromorphic learning and creating this metaplasticity, which is really important. Um, and um, yeah, and then we'll have more rooms a few rooms in june so far so um yeah join us and i hope to hear you all back again okay i'll close the room thanks so much <clears throat> thanks victoria as well yeah thank you thanks fun discussion
close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.